Welcome to This Just In, the show bringing you the latest advancements in healthcare, strategy, innovation, and public policy. And now, for the fastest voice in healthcare, here's your host, Justin Barnes. Thank you for tuning in. Welcome to This Just In. I'm your host, Justin Barnes. And these segments are bringing the latest advancements in healthcare, strategy, innovation, and public policy. As always, we're broadcasting from the This Just In studios on the Business Radio X network, as well as the Healthcare Now radio network. For this episode, my 257th episode, we are very fortunate to have two healthcare pioneers and leading authors in healthcare, Dr. John Halamka and Paul Serrato. Welcome back to the show, gentlemen. Thank you. Well, Thank hey. you for having us. Exactly. This is our favorite place to be. <laughs> Love it. Actually, I was kind of going through my notes. Uh, you are actually my most frequent guest. <laughs> on the show. So it's kind of funny. Um, but it's always great to have you. And you too, Paul, is obviously. Thank you. So, um, John, where are you calling in from, my friend? And so I'm in Sherborne, Massachusetts at Unity Farm Sanctuary today. And why? Well, have you looked at the weather in Minnesota? It is far better to be in New England than Minnesota at the moment. Right. I think you have a storm coming your way if I didn't just uh, see correctly, right? Yeah, so we'll get a little ice. We'll get a little wintry mix as opposed to 24 inches of snow in Rochester. Wintry mix, that's okay. Yeah, exactly. Well, my audience loves this. So give us a real quick update on Uni Farm Sanctuary, please. Well, sure. So it's been an interesting season because since December of 2022, we've only had about seven inches of snow. We usually have about 40 Mm-hmm. And when you've got a hundred acre animal sanctuary with 300 animals, getting 40 inches of snow plowed out of paddocks and lanes is hard. So pretty mild snowless winter animals are happy and healthy, but there is an interesting trend mm-hmm. with the economy having a few headwinds. The requests that we are getting for services and adoption is growing exponentially. And we had three cows uh, requested today (laughs) to come for lifetime homes. It's that kind of issue. And we're we're happy to serve to the extent we can. Yeah, and I will make a special plug just because obviously it's it's near and dear to my heart. I've been donating now for a while. And I, and I, I certainly plead to my audience to, uh, to support Unity Farm Sanctuary. It's a, it's a great, um, you know, just sanctuary in general. If you look at all the animals that they treat and they help, and as John just mentioned, three new cows today, just so, um, you know, a great thing to look into. Certainly great to follow. Your wife, Kathy, does a phenomenal job keeping us updated. Social media, always great to see. Every day I, I see different, um, different posts and, and aspects of the farm. So thank you so much for that, John, and to you and Kathy, for sure. Well, so, thank you. Thank you. So, Paul, where are you calling in from, my friend? So I'm about an hour uh, north of uh, New York City uh, in a town called Warwick, New York. Okay. And um, so there are no cows roaming <laughs> my property. However, uh, what I do spend my time with when I'm not working at Mayo is uh, I, I run a, a music studio, a recording studio called Electric Acoustic Studios. Uh, so I spend my free time recording uh singers and songwriters, and uh, we're just finishing up uh, an audio CD right now that I hope to distribute to everybody who in, who's interested in it. So it, it's really a, it's a labor of love. Excellent. Yeah, we're just catching up off air, and I didn't realize that you were in a, a studio like that. So that's terrific. Yeah. Excellent. So I'm very excited to have you both on air again to discuss this time your new book, Redefining the Boundaries of Medicine. 
So this is your sixth book together. Is that correct? Yep. Awesome. Um, and hey, thank you very much for the advanced copy. I had a chance to go through it. And I just thought it was fascinating as it challenges all of us to rethink and reimagine how healthcare is delivered in the 21st century. I mean, it's terrific. And we're, as we we're talking offline, you know, whether you're a clinician, a clinician, administrator, digital health innovator, or even a patient, you know, this book is really written um, easily to understand uh, what's possible in a high tech, a, you know, in a high tech, high touch healthcare system, and where the patient in front and center. So this is applicable to anybody, you know, in America and even globally. You know, we can study how all different cultures consume healthcare, but the way you guys have approached it and packaged it is very simple to understand. So first of all, I commend you on that, and um, and also let's start off with you know something even from the very early part of the book. Where do you? You know, get the quote, you know, the quote from Gandhi, every revolution begins with a single act of defiance. You know, what's the significance in correlation to this book? Well, um, in, in a sense, we are involved in a healthcare revolution. Um, obviously, we're not involved in any uh, nonviolent civil disobedience right. as Gandhi was, but uh, there is still, uh, there's a correlation there in that uh, there are many movers and shakers in medicine who who resist uh, mm -hmm. what we're talking about. They resist in terms of uh, the AI that we're encouraging. They resist in terms of uh, our suggestion that medical research has to be rethought and uh, things like that. So in a sense, it's a revolution and it's one that uh, involves our um, single act of defiance, which is basically this book. Yeah. And I would add to that, Paul, by saying, in my lectures, I suggest that transformation requires technology change, policy change, and cultural change. COVID, for the tragedy that it has been, has actually created positive cultural change. And people are now asking, well, how is it that I receive care at a distance? How is it that I receive continuous rather than episodic care? How is it that I can be more involved in the care I receive instead of just uh, spending 52 hours a week looking at the internet? Right. How do I have more active participation across the care team? And really that's what the book is looking at. Yeah. And, you know, also as a lifelong entrepreneur, I love how you start off the book with, um, Here's to the crazy ones, referencing Apple's 1997 Think Different commercial, really praising unconventional thinkers, willing to challenge the status quo. So that was quite fitting for this book, as you guys, you know, very well know. So great, uh, great choice there, too. Thank you. You got it. So, well, thanks. And Justin, so you may not know, you know, I have a complicated history is that I was involved with the leaders of Apple at the very beginning and then toward the end of Steve's life. And so it was interesting to watch what was such a revolutionary idea become so mainstream. And that's our hope, right? We are proposing what medicine should be. And maybe 10 years from now, they'll look back at the book and say, well, of course. <laughs> Great point. <laughs> Love it. So let's start off with something um, you know, controversial. So the book says, embrace AI and machine learning because it can improve patient care. But you also say, and you've said this many times, even when we've spoken, John, um, AI algorithms are seriously flawed. How do you reconcile these opposing views? John, you want to start you, with that one? Well, go, go ahead, Paul. Sure, you can start and I'll, I'll, I'll complete. Okay, so uh, we really are aiming this book at both those who are resistant to AI and those who are overly enthusiastic about AI because both of them are not really using critical thinking. 
Uh, there, there are some uh, really well-supported um, algorithms. Um, IDX, uh, for example, has a, an algorithm out for uh, to help detect um, diabetic retinopathy. There are handheld EKG devices that, to detect uh, AFib. So that's the positive side. The negative side is that there's the, probably most of the algorithms out there are not supported by really good prospective data. And the perfect example of that is there was a, a study, an analysis in JAMA that looked at the epic sepsis algorithm, and they found out that uh, it did not did not detect this life-threatening condition in about two-thirds of patients. So clearly, there's a lot of work to be done. Wow. Yes. Well, sir, and here's the way I look at it. You know, uh, Justin, that ML ops, machine learning operations, have, have a life cycle, right? From curated data, you understand the training set, to evaluation of the models produced, to monitoring to ensure efficacy to look at bias. And as a society, I'll be honest, we have a lot of white space right now. Mm -hmm. You know, well, yes, we've generated data sets. Yes, we've generated algorithms, but the end-to-end -end process has not been formalized, nor are there guard, guardrails and guidelines that are widely adopted. So much of what Paul and I are describing in the book is how do we get to the point where you can be assured an algorithm used in your healthcare is transparent, about how it was developed, where it's used, and is it credible? And again, as we look a couple of years from now, people will say, well, you know, there's an underwriter's laboratory sticker on every algorithm. Hasn't it always been that way? <laughs> right. <laughs> Good point. Um, you also mentioned in the book, we need a better approach to medical research because we rely too heavily on RCTs. So what's the alternative there? So the alternative is, well, there's, there's two alternatives. One is to look at the preponderance of evidence across all different types of, of research protocols. So there are observational trials, there are retrospective trials, uh, there's even data in EHR, EHR systems that are not being used yet because they have not found their way into uh, medical research papers. Mm -hmm. So uh, there's, a, there's lots of data sources that need to be tapped, and uh, we can get into that in the detail as we move on, but um, we can't get obsessed with evidence-based uh, medicine in, in the traditional way that, that uh, has been thought of up till today. Yeah. And let me give you a case example, Justin. So imagine it's March of 2020. I know that was a decade ago, or so it feels. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, and say somebody suggests to you that hydroxychloroquine is a great cure for COVID. Well, do you know? Right. A randomized clinical trial would take 18 months. Do you want to start an RCT in March of 2020 and 18 months later decide whether it's good or bad? So what do we do? Well, Mayo and a group of collaborators across the country defined a set of numerators and denominators, real world data we would gather from over 2000 organizations from the actual treatment of patients, looking at morbidity, mortality, ventilator days, you know, all kinds of outcomes. And in two weeks, we determined that hydroxychloroquine was generally not helpful and could be harmful. Mm. And so that's what Paul's getting at. If real world evidence from thousands or millions of patients receiving care can inform you in two weeks, it's a lot better than waiting 18 months. Yeah, no, excellent point. And for my audience, 
RCT is randomized controlled clinical trials. That's what RCTs, RCTs are. Um, no, great point, John. So you also bring up, and this is interesting, medical expertise needs to be re-examined. It's a theme in the book. So what are some of your thoughts there? One of my favorite quotes, and uh, we use it in the book, is by Neil deGrasse Tyson, yep. who's a well-known astrophysicist. Yep. And he, he says, one of the great challenges in life is knowing enough to think you're right, but not enough to know you're wrong. Mm. And that is really one of the problems that, that many uh, medical experts uh, fall into. It's, it's difficult to recognize when you uh, don't know something because you know so much. Mm -hmm. So uh, what we're trying to do in this particular chapter is saying, Start looking at other people as experts, those who are, quote, unleaded, or those who are lower down the, the totem pole. Mm -hmm. um, the um, one example in particular is uh, the patient who has had a disease for like 20 or 30 years. You know, every so often you see this quote, um, sometimes it's on a physician's uh, coffee mug that says, don't think your Google search is equivalent to my eight years of medical training. Right. Okay, that's true. But the other side of the coin is the patient can say, don't think that your one lecture on my rare disease is equivalent <laughs> to my 20 years of dealing with this. Right. So she or he is an expert and that expertise has to be recognized. Yeah. And Paul, you know, I totally agree. My father had multiple sclerosis for 23 years. And my father went through every bioengineered drug ever made for MS. And you know what's fascinating? There, at least in history, has not been patient report of outcomes or closed loop telemetry that would tell you how patients experienced either success or failure from the medications they took. And so my father, before he passed away, said, well, wouldn't it be wonderful if we had some kind of tooling so that I would take a med, I would have objective and subjective measures that would be fed back to patients like me. Mm -hmm. They can say, oh, that is likely to be helpful or that's conceivably hurtful. And that's, again, the things we argue for in the book. Yeah. And you can certainly see, I think we're, we're getting there more and more every day. I mean, obviously we have a long ways to go and, and it's also very individualistic in that, in that um, perspective, but, uh, but we're, we're seeing patients get more engaged in their care. I believe at least, you know, the care providers that I engage in a, on a regular basis, they do listen to me. Um, I am certainly very active in my care, as you can imagine. I'm sure you both are as well. But, um, but you know, I also seek out doctors who want to work with me and not just tell me how I feel and, or, you know, they, they, they care what my symptoms are and, you know, beyond just you know, what they are on the surface level. But how have you been dealing with this? What has worked? What hasn't worked? Um, how are you documenting that? Um, you know, certainly you caption that over time. And that's where technology is really coming into play, even being able to track these types of items and allowing us to communicate, you know, more openly and in secure fashions. So, you know, I think we're making demonstrable strides there. We have a long way to go, but I think we're making great strides in that direction. So, You're right. We are making strides. Absolutely. Yep. And for those tuning in, we're speaking with authors Paul Serrato and Dr. John Halamka about their new book, Redefining the Boundaries of Medicine. So, oh, and, you know, ironically, <laughs> I just turned my page in my uh, notes here. Um, in the book, and very serendipitously here, you talk about the need for better patient communication. Um, how can that be accomplished? John, you want to start with that one? Well, absolutely. So as we look at the modern world of what I'll call multi-channel communications, right? Every one of us has different ways of learning. 
some visual, some audio, different ways of communicating, some email, text, some paper-based mail. Everything that we do going forward has got to recognize the preferences for communication and learning of every individual. And I think you're going to see more and more algorithms used to ensure the right information gets to the mm -hmm. right person at the right time in the right way. And as we've been chatting about, we just need to be sure those algorithms are unbiased and we ensure those algorithms meet the patient at their level of technological sophistication and do no harm. And much of the work, you know, in 2023 is getting us to those kinds of guardrails and guidelines we've been talking about. Yeah. I'm sorry, go ahead. Okay, yeah, no, John, I want to do a quick follow-up before Paul. So during my think tank back in 2019, you talked about how how some of these um, these algorithms are biased. Can you dive into that a little bit just to educate my audience? Remember that from back in 1920 and 20? Yeah. Oh, well, absolutely. So here's an issue. Suppose we develop an amazing algorithm based on all those people who can afford to go to mm -hmm. a really great academic medical center. Right. And then we apply it more globally. Well, maybe the people we're applying it to <laughs> have a totally different demographic, phenotype, genotype, or exposome. Maybe, in fact, the algorithms are not relevant to them. In fact, might give advice that is the opposite of what they need. <laughs> yeah, similar, similarly, uh, we, we did a paper for the British Medical Journal Group in which we highlight all the various algorithms that were are not attuned to the needs of women, the needs of uh, black patients, the needs of uh, the poor, because they were not represented in the data sets that we use to create the algorithm. So those biases obviously have to be addressed. Yeah, excellent point. I actually think you brought that up on the last show we did. Tech, mm -hmm. Wasn't your last book on that topic specifically? I think we may have, we may have touched on it in the last book too, yeah. We did. That's great. So my next item uh, in question is around physicians, you know, trained as scientists. Does spirituality really have a place in medical practice? Absolutely. And you do not have to be religious as a clinician to, to see the value of it. I mean, you, you look at the surveys and mm -hmm. by and large, most patients appreciate a doctor or a nurse who respects their religious beliefs and somehow finds a way to incorporate those into their healthcare plan. Um, and as you don't have to be religious in order to, to make it happen, but it's important for us as clinicians to push the idea of spirituality and the humanities into the healthcare encounter. And to use a, an unusual example, can you imagine a physician taking out his, um, Prescription pad, well, they don't use those anymore, but uh, let's say uh, um, a letterhead and on it writing, uh, go to church today mm -hmm. or uh, um, practice meditation twice a week. Mm -hmm. You know, for some patients, that may be an appropriate prescription. And the point I'm getting at is it's not enough to simply say, well, you may, maybe you should be looking into some of these things. Make a specific recommendation that relates to their spiritual and religious needs so that they, and the reason it's so important for clinicians to do that is because they have an unusually powerful impact on patients' uh, choices. You know, this is not the same as mom telling you to go to church or, right. or your brother or sister telling you to, uh, to meditate. Doctors have a very powerful influence, obviously, on, on patient behavior. 
And to emphasize what Paul has said, so this is not a chapter about a specific organized religion or philosophy. It's just to recognize that medicine is a combination of your molecules that you're taking in, food or medicine, but also your attitude. <laughs> and so each day I'm on Zoom, Teams, and Meet for 12 hours or so. Yes. But do you know that during the day I take the Unity Farm uh, dogs for a walk in the forest and I forest bathe, <laughs> a term of art, right? Mm -hmm. And there's a certain spirituality of just being in the middle of a forest where it is quiet with these dogs around me, soaking in the environment, digitally separated from the world. <laughs> and that's just an example of the kind of healing that spirituality can bring to the whole person. Yeah, I, I could not agree more. And I, I love that aspect of the book and subscribe to it personally myself. So I, I love that we're able to touch on it here. So I want to touch on a little bit. I'm going to leave my audience here. We're going to do another show in a few weeks. So you guys certainly want to, want to tune in to, um, to uh, our second episode. But I want to touch on the crystal ball aspect. Whenever we, t we speak, John and Paul, I always try to you know pull up the crystal ball at least for a few minutes. So we've got about three minutes here before I have to wrap up this show. But again, we'll be doing another show here uh, very soon. But um, let's talk. Let's look into the crystal ball and let's look at whatever trends we see you know, over the next 12 to 18 months in healthcare. What do you think, John? Okay. Mm -hmm. So people ask me over and over, will AI replace my doctor? And here's what I always say. AI will not replace your doctor, but clinicians who are augmented with the benefit of AI tools will replace physicians who aren't. Mm, that's great. So the crystal ball suggests these tools are really important, but they have to be in conjunction with human decision-making and spirituality. That's fantastic. Anything you want to add on to that, Paul? Yeah, in my crystal ball, I see uh, wearables, that is remote patient monitoring devices. Uh, they are a huge growth area. You look at some of the startups that are involved in this. Uh, I mean, you go back to the 19, I guess the 60s, uh, when uh, glucose monitors came out, that was considered pretty revolutionary. Patients could Take, take their uh, glucose levels themselves by, by a little pinch. Now you go forward about 20, 30 years, and there are now continuous glucose monitoring systems. There's a, a new uh, product out by Abbott called Freestyle. Yep. So you just put a little patch on your skin, and it pretty much happens on its own. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. There are now smart um, inhalers that will tell you, are you providing the right dose of, uh, let's say, a butamine, Butyrol. Um, uh, uh, there are um, metering systems out there that can help uh, assess uh, a, uh, a Parkinson's disease patient and whether or not uh, their symptoms are getting worse based on their gait. And uh, you know, it goes on and on. That that is, in my view, uh, an important part of the future of healthcare. I completely agree. So real quickly in kind of a closing minute or so, uh, and we'll touch on this in our next episode as well, but um, I guess, John, doing a follow-up, how do clinicians stay, and again, kind of like a one minute answer, how do they stay engaged in knowing where AI kind of meets into their care strategy? So I'm a strong believer in collaboration and facilitating communities that share experiences. So sure, you could read the literature, um, and sure, you could take a class, but better, you know, join a group, 
Be part of a community working through these challenges together. That's fantastic. Anything you want to add on to that, Paul? No, that says that says it all. Yeah. So, and actually, I'll use a moment here because, um, first of all, you both are phenomenal collaborators. But um, are you going to be? Where are you going to be speaking over the next couple of months, John and Paul? I think you guys can go to Hymns in April. Is that correct in Chicago? Oh, yes, we will be at Hymns. In fact, that's, we'll be doing a book signing uh, at the Mayo Clinic uh, uh, booth in April. So we'll, we'll both be there. And John, I'm sure you'll be doing a lot of speaking. You want to talk about that? Yeah. And so you can assume that Paul and I and the Mayo Clinic platform team will be at every major healthcare technology event throughout the year. And we look forward to seeing you there. Fantastic. But you're not going to be at Vive in no, uh, next month in March, are you? Vive in next Oh, month? of course. You know, we'll have Mayo folks at Vive. Okay. So don't worry. Yeah, we, we will not be shy. <laughs> <laughs> Beautiful. Well, I have, I'll be doing my radio show live from there. So uh, maybe I'll have one of those people on air. I'd love to have that uh, as always. So it'd be great. All right. Well, John and Paul, you guys have been terrific. I um, appreciate you taking your time out of your busy schedules to, uh, to join my show. Uh, and again, for my audience, we'll be bringing them back. We'll be doing a second part series on their new book, Refining the Boundaries of Medicine. So certainly um, look out for that. And also, I'm sure we'll dive back in uh, to the crystal ball. So thanks again, John and Paul, for joining me today. Thank you. You got it. Thank and, you. and thank you to all for listening and joining in. And please tune in weekdays at 2.30 p.m. Eastern, 11.30 a.m. Pacific. As always, you can track me on Twitter at HIT Advisor and use the hashtag ThisJustinRadio so we can respond to your comments from the show. If you missed any of this episode or want to hear more, all my shows are posted on Apple iTunes, SoundCloud, iHeartRadio, Spreaker, and TuneIn. Um, and also we posted some great new content and also rewrote JustinBarnes.com. So that's all available now. Uh, to everyone. So thank you again and have a great rest of your day. Thanks all. 